0: Hello and welcome on today's episode, we get the opportunity to go back and pull out our takeaways with this wonderful episode with Drea talking about struggle, the psychology of poverty. We're going to switch gears and bring in Craig, who's helping us roll out a house hacking strategy. And we're going behind the scenes, going back to the drawing board, revealing the tenants of financial independence. Welcome to the ultimate crowdsource personal finance show. This is your Friday roundup.
1: You're listening to choose FI radio.
2: The Blueprint for Financial Independence lives here.
1: If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI your home for financial independence online.
0: All right. We have a very ambitious objective today. Lots to cover. And I thought we could start, Brad, our book, Chooseify Your Blueprint to Financial Independence got rolled out on October 1st. Now available anywhere books are found. And what I thought we could do in light of that is take just a few minutes and maybe each week for the next, you know, ever, (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, we could actually kind of roll out or go back and review one of the principles or tenants of financial independence. So a couple of weeks ago, we actually went ahead and talked about why everybody should be pursuing getting their match via their uh, 401k. If they have that option, as you're just walking away from free money in that episode, we said the next thing we should do is learn how to identify the funds that we have access to and specifically the expense ratios. And today we're going to take a few minutes and talk about why expense ratios and funds are important to understand. To help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How are you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan. I'm doing quite well.
1: Yeah, this has been uh, quite a week in Choose a I World. We had the release of our book, Choose a Fi, Your Blueprint to Financial Independence come out on the 1st. And yeah, a lot of work has gone into this book for the last 2 years and it's just it's really exciting. And satisfying and amazing, honestly, to hold our book. It's really pretty wild.
0: It was actually pretty cool and terrifying to see that our book was back ordered on Amazon. <laughs> uh, you'd like to believe that that is because overwhelming demand, but, uh, MK, what is going on with Amazon? Do we have an idea of when they're going to have that back in stock?
2: Because our book is print on demand, they are constantly putting in new orders. What happened was that our printer had printed the books. They were sending them to Amazon, and Amazon said, "We haven't received the delivery yet today. We're going to give out the worst case scenario, which is six weeks." So, uh, if you, you will go get on it sometime
0: 20- in 2021. <laughs>
2: yeah, but thankfully it was remedied quickly. So that first day it came out, fielding a lot of emails and uh, messages from people concerned about it. But within I want to say eight hours, every person said, "Hey." I now have an updated shipping time. It's coming, you know, next couple days and they received it. So it was just a technical issue with the two systems for the printer and Amazon linking up. Uh, so that was why.
1: Yeah, I'm actually seeing it right now on amazon.com and it's saying available to ship in one to two days. So yeah, perfectly normal.
0: So if someone goes on there and they see that the estimated time to delivery is four to six weeks, uh, what should they do? Should they wait four to six weeks to order the book?
2: No, they should still order it. So effectively what that means is that for that exact time of the day that they're on there, that Amazon is just waiting to receive that next shipment. But effectively when the book is ordered, then the order goes from Amazon to our printer printer makes the book. They send it back to Amazon. They send it to you. That usually takes about 48 to 72 hours, depending on the speed of shipping that you have selected for Amazon.
0: Awesome. Well, someone left us some feedback on the book and they're like, Oh, what's in the book. I feel like what's in the book is exactly like what's on the podcast. And, um, to my response to that would be uh, yes. Yes, that is exactly what is in the book.
1: That was the plan, actually.
0: (laughs) That was the entire plan is to take the content that spans 60, 70, 300 plus episode that's kind of all over the map and give you a very linear path that you could incorporate this information into your life. And specifically, even if you've got this, like I truly believe that with like 10 to 20 hours of total research, intensive research, you can come up with a financial plan that will guide your entire life. I mean, and and be worth millions of hours. This is not rocket science. Once you have that plan, it's all about taking action. For many of you that are following us on this journey, it is all about staying tuned to the community. It's for the motivation, the psychology, and then few additional tips to continue to make it easier and optimize at the margins. But this book, these principles, this is the core of everything. So, you know, when it comes to Pareto's principle, the 80, 20 of what's going to move you towards a better financial future, this book is it. Uh, with that in mind, Brad, let's take a few minutes and actually talk about what is in the book and specifically again today talk about expense ratios.
1: Yeah, I think this kind of FI 101 refresher is really important. And actually, we talked recently about this where we're rolling out a FI 101 course, an online course that's free. You can get on the waitlist now at slash FI 101. And we're just going to try to bring up these things that we've talked about over. 300 plus episodes, but we don't go back to all that often. And I think getting the 401k match was the first one we talked about and expense ratios are the next one here up on the block. So I think it's very hard intuitively to understand compounding when you're first presented with it and how much these little fees, what seem like little fees, right? You hear, oh, that mutual fund has a 1% fee or that financial advisor has a 1% or 1.25% assets under management fee. It sounds like, okay, I'm just paying this tiny little pittance, this 1%. And I'm getting this amazing advice or this amazingly actively managed mutual fund, but my argument is over a 40 plus year period, it's going to be very hard to outperform the market. And therefore those expenses, when reduced from the overall market return, which is what happens. It just basically gets taken off the top. It is going to decimate your overall return. So for me personally, and now this is not blanket advice for every listener out there by any means, obviously you have to do your own research, your own due diligence. But for me personally, I don't think that I can outperform the stock market over a 40 year period. So for me, I just want to match it. What I can do is I can lower my expenses on this dramatically by, in my case, not hiring an expensive financial advisor who's going to charge somewhere in the vicinity of 1% and not getting actively managed mutual funds. So I personally go for low cost, broad-based index funds. And I think we've seen people like Warren Buffett in his letter to stockholders a couple of years ago, he talked about 90% of his estate when he passes on he instructed them to put in a low-cost Vanguard S&P 500 index fund. That's Warren Buffett, the most brilliant investor probably of all time. He doesn't believe even whoever would be the successor or the executor of this estate could possibly beat the market. So just match the market. In his in his case, he picked the S&P 500. I personally picked the total stock market index fund. But at that point, you're ultimately splitting hairs. And if you want to find the expense ratios on these, you can just Google that fund. So for instance, one of the most popular funds that we talk about here in the FI community is VTSAX. It's the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund. And if you just Google VTSAX expense ratio or VTSAX Vanguard, you come up to their page and you see the fund facts. It's right here on the side. And it says expense ratio as of 4.26, 2019, it's 0.04%. So this is minuscule that's four, one hundredths of a percent. So you're basically getting the total return of the stock market of these 3000 plus companies, and it's only going to be reduced by this tiny, tiny little bit. And Jonathan, I want to get you in here certainly, but we can run through the mathematics of this to show you what a difference this is between getting a mutual fund with this tiny little fee versus a mutual fund with a significant 1% fee or even worse a mutual fund with a 1% fee plus an advisor and a 1% fee as well.
0: Yeah. I think actually even going back a half step and saying, well, you know, what does this look like for an individual? So this is an individual. They're just now starting to think about taking advantage of the 401k match that their employer has set up for them. So now they go to their HR, they set it up and now they're investing several hundred dollars a month, maybe more than that, maybe multiples of that. And now their employer is matching them, you know, that a percentage as well. Now it's in this investment account, but it's just sitting kind of just in cash in this holding vehicle, right? So now they're actually talking about buying. They have options of different things that they can buy and they can't buy anything when you're inside of a, a 401k, especially a employer sponsored 401k. In many cases, you're limited to funds that they have actually set up with you. In fact. Sometimes they're really bad options. In which case, once you understand this, you can actually be an advocate for better options. Sometimes they're really good options. Sometimes there's a mix of both and just knowing the difference. And so my wife was a teacher in a private school system, and I worked for a large retail pharmacy. And with both of us, we didn't just have access to VTSAX. I couldn't just type that in. But what I did instead is I looked for index funds. That's just kind of what I started with. Right. And with both of us, although the names of the funds were different immediately, when you saw index funds, there was a massive difference between the fees that were being charged from these other mutual fund options and the index funds. And what I tried to do in that case, since I didn't have access to the total stock market index, I tried to find one that mirrored the S and P 500. For me, that was the compromise. That was, that's what I was able to get inside of it. Now, why are those expense ratios so much smaller i think that's kind of like it's important to even understand this and and why this is actually a benefit for you on multiple levels when you have an actively managed fund you have a person or team of people likely that are making decisions to beat the market or to hedge your risk depending on how they're marketing it and in order to do that almost by definition they need to do something different than the market is doing they need to not be in the market when the market is going down they need to make better choices that they know have additional upside or return. They need to prove their brilliance, right? But that's, you have to pay for that, for that insight. And the problem is you have to pay whether or not their guess, their bet is right, or if it's wrong.
1: Right. And let's be clear. There are vanishingly few people that can actually beat the market over a 20, 30, 40 year period. So you talk about, they're trying to prove their brilliance and they are obviously, because otherwise you would just put the money in an index fund, like we're suggesting. So they're not going to just sit tight. They're going to actually trade, which are going to incur more costs. But yes, I mean, they are clearly trying to beat the market, but very, very very good intentions. I promise.
0: (laughs) Uh, But, but even when they're trading, like they're making these additional actions, as you're pointing out, they're creating taxable events. One of the things that we talk about and we'll talk about later is controlling your tax rate. We like the idea of minimizing taxable events. As this thing grows, we just want to keep up with the market, minimize our taxable events as that's happening. And then when we are ready to draw down on the money at some point down in the distance, that's when we want to create the taxable event. We don't want all sorts of churn in the middle where we're trying to get in and out of funds. We want, we are buy and hold investors for the long-term because we believe over time, the market will do what the market has done not exactly day for day, but over his, you know, time periods, like five, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, we suspect that it will resemble the last whatever, you know, 40 to hundred years. And what you look, if you look at the stock market, someone actually asked us, how do you come up with your, your 8% return? Cause I'll be honest with you. I cannot tell you what is going to happen with the stock market tomorrow, next month, next year. You know, I, like something bad is going to happen at some point in time, but Lots of bad stuff has happened in the past at various points. Really, really bad stuff has happened at various intervals throughout human history. And the stock market has tanked when that has happened and it has come back and it has gone multiples of that beyond. So what we want to do is we want to buy throughout. We want to buy when the market's going up. We want to buy when the market's going down. We want to hold that for as long as possible until we need that income. And over time, if it can resemble what it has approximately done over any 40 year period throughout human history then we're going to end up in remarkably good shape. And if that's the case, then we want to do it as at as low of a cost as possible.
1: Yeah. So Jonathan, I actually had mocked up on an old article I'd written years ago. The math still works. Obviously I mocked up an example of this. I think the illustration here is perfect of how important fees are. Now the numbers are are kind of out here. So bear with me. I said you would start with $100,000. So let's say you're, you're, down the path to five, you have hundred K saved up. You're saving $1,000 monthly. And in this scenario, I actually assumed a 9% market return. I wish that I had done eight, honestly, but this is what we're going with for now. So this is a 40 year timeline, 40 years, because that's the timeline you guys need to think in terms of for many of us on the path to FI, even if you're in your fifties, 40 year timeline is, is not unrealistic at all. So I like to think at least in 40 year time period. The balance at year 40, if you just assume that 9% return and no fees at all is $7.2 million. So that's if you started with $100,000 and added $1,000 a month, that shouldn't be unrealistic for many people on the path to five. If you put in a mutual fund with five basis points, so 0.05% expense ratio, which is very similar to many of the index funds you'll see at Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab, you lose $100,000 of that. So actually you have nearly $7.1 million. So contrast that to 7.2 here, you have 7.1, but let's say you had went with one of these other actively managed mutual funds instead that had a 1% expense ratio. So you're only getting an 8% net return. After 40 years, you lose almost $2 million. Jonathan, $2 million. You're left with $5.28 $5.28 million instead of $7.2 million, $1.9 million less just by picking that mutual fund that theoretically they're trying to show their brilliance, but in all honesty, there's a very, very unlikely chance that they're going to beat the market. So if you wanted to further double down and have assets under management fee here, so you're paying a advisor 1% plus that 1% mutual fund fee. So you're only getting a 7% net return in this case you would lose $3.3 million to fees, $3.3 million, almost half, 45 plus percent of this. You'd be left with $3.9 million instead of the 7.1 million. If you put it in a low cost broad-based index fund, if you're looking for an example of why fees matter, this is it.
0: And then the last piece that I wanted to add to this is I am sure right now I can, someone out there says, well, I... No, a mutual fund that has actually beat the index for the last five years. Ooh. <laughs> challenge gauntlet down challenge accepted. Yes, it, it is a fair point, but you need to like, think about this one, man. If I had those hindsight 2020 glasses right now, I'd be a very wealthy man. We have no way of predicting. I don't know. I, I will be first to tell you, I don't know who is going to be the winners. And who are they going to be the losers over the next five, 10 or 15 years? I do know how to keep up with whatever the market does. That's a lot easier of a target. And there's multiple problems with this one, five years is nothing. Right. We just talked about 40 year investing timelines. Like basically if you look at the market over any 40 year period of time, we have a pretty good idea what the return will be. That is a full, that's a full investing window right there. Five years is nothing. We've been on a tear the last five years. How would you compare this to the last five years or the prior five years? Also, what are you comparing it to? Like for instance, if someone had gone all in on growth stocks had gone all in on Microsoft and Fang and these big tech companies. You know, and that's basically, you're just picking this small segment. You would have absolutely crushed it, but is that what it's going to look like for the next five years? I mean, and so this is the case, some people, and this is a whole other conversation for another day, looking at actually asset allocation and what's comprising this, this index that you're actually tracking. That's a much more interesting conversation, but I would say that you, just because you know what happened the last five years, you have no idea what's coming the next five years and to go all in on that hand and do so. The only thing that's guaranteed is the fees that you're buying into when you get these funds. I'm just locking in the fact that if I can just keep up with the market over this investing timeline, I'm going to be great. I'm going to be fantastic. And in the meantime, I'm going to do it at as low a cost as possible. So, all right. This segment brought to you by ChooseFI, your blueprint to financial independence, which you can find at choosefi.com book. You don't need to wait for the next segment. You can get all this information today. Go check it out. All right. Well, let's go ahead and switch gears, Brad. I want to pivot back to this past week's episode where we were talking with Drea Montenko about struggle, the psychology of poverty. Uh, One of the things that is very important is recognizing that financial independence is, is possible for everybody. You know, it's simple, it's not easy, but also simultaneous that recognizing that we're not all starting from the same place. That's what Drea brought with this episode is a framework both for, you know, what it is that us as two suburban guys living, you know, on the West end of Richmond, what we may or may not be able to appreciate about the psychology of poverty, actually being able to create a framework for that, her life experience, how she broke through and also kind of reaching a hand back and saying, this is what I could tell my younger self. This is what I want to get out there. This is the information that I think that you need to know.
1: Yeah. And clearly this struggle, she called it a piece of her DNA and the lens with which she looks at the world. What she also said, which I thought was really interesting is struggle is what quote, allows us to connect across experiences. She went on to say that everyone has struggles and we can connect even if your struggle was very different from my struggle. I think a lot of us can connect on, this has not just been a straight line, happy life for most, if not all of us. There has been struggle along the way And I think when we open ourselves up to that common humanity, there's a lot more, I can see eye to eye, even if you wouldn't normally think that's an experience you could talk about when you talk with compassion and genuine curiosity. I think that's how you and I try to approach every guest we talk to because we don't know how they live, even if they seem similar to us, right? You said two suburban dads. It's that compassion and genuine curiosity, and I think people can tell when you want to connect with them. And like Dre is saying, this struggle
0: is actually one way to bridge that connection, which I found fascinating. There really were two halves of the episode. The first was the the psychology, right? It's it's that what does this struggle look like? What is how? What is the effect internally and externally on an individuals' life? The second was how she personally broke free, and also the other options that are out there. And that's honestly where I want to spend more time exploring this, the feedback that I feel like we see is that it is financial independence really for everybody, or is it just for those with extreme levels of privilege? And personally, I feel like no, no, it's not for people with privilege. It's it's, we're not all starting in the same place. Clearly people do have advantages, but people with advantages waste it all the time and end up penniless, you know, in their mid thirties and forties. And so first and foremost, don't waste it. That's a case that we've made in the past, but second. What does it look like to make this more useful for someone that is starting at a significant disadvantage that doesn't have the stability in place that many of us maybe take for granted. And Drea with this episode, two or three big points that I really heard. One was for her, the education, education at all costs, something that, you know, maybe in the past I've been guilty of saying, well, is that really still the case? I I like to think that I have a pretty balanced perspective on it. But I can certainly see if I were to think about her episode, the impact that it had on her life, but also if you hear about Christy Shen, quit like a millionaire, her journey coming from rural China, really the only reason that got her out of medical waste heaps, literally medical waste heaps. And I used the word literally correctly here, people was education for them. That was their opportunity for her to go to Canada and it completely transformed her life and that of her families. I think this episode was clarifying for me to realize that you can't just write it out of hand. Yeah, and I think one of the
1: major aspects that Drea talked about was this psychology of poverty. I think a lot of people look at that potentially negatively, but she said it's this incredible positive, right? She's talking about the grind, the tenacity, the resilience, the struggle, and the grit. And these are positives to propel you forward. But she said it needs to be harnessed. And her quote was, How can I redirect that energy and use it as a benefit to push forward? And I think if people took that mindset and said, all right, maybe on some levels, these are negatives. My life situation may not have been perfectly ideal, but these lessons that have been ingrained in me, these are things that I can harness and actually use to move forward. And I just thought that was an incredible reframe on this and really a brilliant point. I mean, all of these attributes, if you were to look to hire someone and you said, you know, grind, tenacity, resilience, grit, that's the person I want to hire. I mean, those are incredible life skills. It's not just the book learning or some fancy degree. It's these are lessons from life. And I would love to have someone
0: like that work for me. Yeah, I mean, I think if you say, you know, what is the story you tell yourself about yourself? If you can get to the point where you take the struggle and you are able to harness that towards something, that's the opening right there. And then what that actually looks like, I mean, I think you need some level of financial literacy. You you have to, you absolutely have to know the rules. Otherwise, you end up with car payments with ridiculous interest rates, payday loans that are coming after you, lack of social any sort of security, you know, at all. You're one small incident away from having to take on loans with massive interest rates. I've seen that it's, it's devastating. It's really hard to get ahead when any margin in your life is just trying to catch up on the interest payments on something. You have to have financial literacy, but if you can get to financial literacy, financial sovereignty, if you can build just any bandwidth into that at all, that harnessing the grit really starts to take hold. And that resilience, that ability to keep showing up is, is remarkable. So there were three things that I heard her say that I wanted to come back to education, which we just covered just a little bit, trades, learning a skill, and then three, mentorship. All of these have to do with increasing your zone of awareness. All of them have to do with somehow bringing new information into your life. If you can take that resiliency and now pair that with increasing your zone of awareness, that's the part of financial independence and spreading financial literacy that gets me so excited. There are some things That you have had to cultivate that other people simply haven't. And they're they're at a slight disadvantage because they don't have that resiliency. They don't have that grit. The first time they get punched in the face, they can't get back up. They don't know what to do with it. It's a year to recover. I mean, when you're in the trenches and you've been able to build that up, you can brush it off and move forward. And if you pair that with financial sovereignty, increasing your zone of awareness. You're going to create your own luck. Nobody is giving you anything, but you're going to create your own luck and you're going to set yourself up for enough opportunities that eventually luck is going to strike and when it happens, it will be harnessed.
1: Yeah. And this ties directly into what Drea said about mentorship, right? She said, mentorship is everything. It's stepping out of that circle of people that's directly around you and thinks just like you to introducing people who think a little bit differently. That to me is the financial independence community think a little bit differently. And she said she would reach out to people who were where she wanted to be and just said, Hey, can you teach me? People would be thrilled if they had this skill and someone came up to them and said, man, you're where I want to be in life. Can you help me? Can you teach me? And she said she would sit and ask questions and quote curiosity created these relationships. And it is In a sense, it's like you said, it's making your own luck. It's creating these opportunities. Did every person that Dre reached out to say yes and spend 50 hours of their lives with her? No, I can almost certainly assume that no is the answer to that. But did enough people that she could get these amazing relationships and information out of and move forward with her life? I mean, yeah, it's it's very obvious that this was a hugely successful really strategy, even if she didn't think about it on that level. Like this is a brilliant strategy for creating your own luck. You're finding people and you're establishing
0: relationships with them. I love this. Someone, uh, on our YouTube channel actually left a comment saying, I think Drea might be the exception to the rule. And I was like, yes, yes, that's exactly in that throughout life. This is the point of encouragement. There will always be someone There's someone like, no matter how bad you have it, no matter what your life circumstances are, the encouraging word is that there's someone that has it and has had it worse than you have it now and found a way, found something, found some way to improve their situation and get remarkable results. And that it's replicable if you can find out what it is that they did and start incorporating some of those tactics. Now, I think there's this tendency just in general for uncurious people to write off Anything that doesn't apparently seem obvious as, well, that's not for you because you didn't start here. You didn't have this. You didn't have that. Look at this life circumstance. That's a shame because as soon as you start writing off other people's stories because they don't exactly match yours, you're ruling off the ability that you take action on any of those concepts, any of those ideas, even the ones that are universally applicable. Perfect example, Tori Dunlap. We're talking with her about negotiating your salary. And there was someone that left feedback on that episode talking about, you know, the fact that she got that first hundred K saved up by 25 was largely due to the fact that her father set her up with her first business. I was like, Oh, you're missing the point. You're missing the point one. No, it was a childhood business. I doubt it was like remarkably profitable. Right.
1: I think he <laughs> bought her a $300 vending machine at first.
0: And then two salary negotiation is a universally applicable skill that you can learn. You can learn. She gave you 90% of her course in the episode for free, and you could learn the rest if you wanted to also for free, or you could take her course because you're willing to start thinking about that way. Every job interview or interaction or every single employer review that you have going forward, you could take this skill set with you where you started has nothing to do with what you actually could do with this next employee review. But if you write it off as, oh, that's for her because of something her father did for her when she was nine, you've invalidated that entirely. And it's, it's unfortunate. It's sad, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. The way I go through life Every little piece of information that I encounter does not always serve me where I am right now. But if there's a chance I could use it in some way, I think about it the same way that we think about talent stacking. If there's some way that I can use it, I'm going to go back to that Rolodex of ideas and I'm going to pull those out. And it doesn't have to do with where I started or where I'm going. It's just that if I have the more information I have, the wider my zone of awareness is, the more likely it is that luck's going to strike because I've kind of planned for it. All right, so let's go ahead and switch gears. MK, I want to bring you back into this conversation and bring in some feedback from the community. What do you got in the mailbag this week?
2: Great. Well, just like last week when we shared a win from our Chooseify travel course, we actually had another big one to celebrate. So Tiffany is taking a trip to Aruba on 120,000 points. So she wrote, first travel hack booked, my first IHG visa card statement closed, and I got the 120,000 bonus points approximately one week later. I booked four nights in Aruba using the sign-up bonus since the fourth night is free. We are going in February, perfect time to go to Aruba. I transferred Chase Rewards points to Southwest. We still had to pay the $90.55 per person in-flight tax, but the total out-of-pocket for a four-night vacation to Paradise is $181.10. Wow. So that is a huge savings, Tiffany. Congratulations. Wow,
1: Brad, that is incredible. Yeah, that is amazing. It's really remarkable how far... Travel rewards points and miles can take you, right? I mean, I know I've been on trips really around the world with ultimately the millions of points that I've earned from, from millions.
0: And <laughs> I think I'm still in the hundreds of thousands. Yeah, but now I aspire. I mean,
1: that's not nothing, though. So yeah, well done, Tiffany. And for anybody out there who's interested in travel rewards, we do have a, a free course. It's an email course that you can sign up at chooseify.com/travel.
0: Ed set this up, and Jonathan, it's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. So actually back in one of our early episodes, episode nine of our podcast, we talked about kind of a framework for travel rewards, but things change. Things always change. And while podcast is kind of a static deal, this course was designed end to end to give you the latest and greatest information and create a simple framework that you could get started on your own travel rewards journey. It is incredibly intuitive. And it's basically built with this mindset that you could go from knowing absolutely nothing about travel rewards to by the end of it, Having taken your first trip, Tiffany, it actually posted in our travel group, our Facebook travel group. This was her first trip. Nice.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> That's awesome.
0: So Brad, what I had Ed do is kind of create some forensic analysis here and evaluate. So what Tiffany has pulled off and then kind of tee up some next steps. So this is kind of cool with this Facebook travel group. After you've taken the course, choose a fi.com slash travel, it will give you an invite to join the Facebook group. And that's a place where you can ask your tailored questions and get feedback on the trip that you have planned, how to actually do that. So in Tiffany's case, from like the what's next perspective, Tiffany can get more Chase Ultimate Rewards points for applying for 3 Chase credit cards. Now many people actually there's many people that would look at the cards that I'm about to mention and write them off and think that they automatically like don't qualify for. And and this if you did think that, that, that might be unfortunate because you're probably leaving over $2,000 in free travel, uh, money on the table. Now, the three cards I'm about to mention, Brad, and I want you to like spot check me here as I go through this, and make sure that, that I'm being accurate. The three cards would be the chase ink business preferred, the ink business unlimited and the ink business cash. Now, right now we're recording this. This is October, 2019. The reason this works is that right now, these, all of these cards have incredibly generous signup bonuses that come with them. Now, after you earn these points, if you were to tee those up, you can then transfer all of these accumulated ultimate rewards points. And that's where I want you to to highlight. You can transfer all of these from these business cards to any personal account that you have. So, you know, our number one card that we always talk about is the chase Sapphire preferred. If you earn these cards on the, on any of these business cards at the end of that, you can bring those back to your personal account. Now. Now, somebody's listening to this saying, "Well, I, I don't, you know, the business. Do do I qualify? You know, they have business in the names. Most people in the financial independence community will qualify for these cards. And what I mean by that is, if you have an Airbnb, if you drive for Uber or Lyft, if you rent your vehicle on Turo, if you deliver for Instacart, DoorDash, you do any freelance work at all, if you have rentals, you would qualify for one or more of these cards." So with that in mind, if these business cards interest you of the ones just mentioned, I think the clear winner, the one to start with would be the chase Inc business preferred.
1: Yeah, I agree completely. That is my number one small business credit card right now, as we're recording this on October 8th, 2019, it has an 80,000 point bonus when you spend $5,000 in the first three months. And that's 80,000 of these chase ultimate rewards points, which we've talked about previously. We love because you can transfer them to a number of different partners, such as Southwest, Hyatt, United, and British Airways. So for instance, I could actually get 16 free nights at my local Hyatt place here where we have family stay pretty often. It's only 5,000 points a night. So you could get 16 free nights just from this one credit card bonus. So it's, it's pretty significant. And to our audience, we've partnered with card ratings for our coverage of credit cards They are an affiliate of this program, and if you want to get started with your travel rewards journey and support the show, go to choosefi.com slash Inc. That's I-N-K to start your travel rewards journey today.
0: All right, everyone, this next segment, we are getting the opportunity to speak with Craig Kerlop about his brand new book, The House Hacking Strategy. Now, if you have listened to us over the past hundred some odd episodes, actually multiples of that now, you have heard us probably... Six, seven, ten, twenty, thirty times mentioned in passing. There's a few force multipliers out there, but if you can find someone that is able to graduate school with little to no debt, and on top of that pairs this one strategy, house hacking, they pull this off successfully, it basically guarantees that they will have reached financial independence in the early thirties. Those two things, there's so many books, including, you know, many that I love that talk about how to cut the coffees, how to make these small little changes and in aggregate, it will have an effect. And all of that is true, but I kid you not in saying that house hacking combined with not having to unwind massive amounts of student loan debt, those two are probably enough to put you far ahead of most of the people on the path to financial independence. So when Craig shared with us that he was creating a tactical strategy to house hacking, Brad, uh, we knew we needed to have him on the show.
1: Yeah. You and me both. And he partnered with, uh, bigger pockets publishing to put the book out and yeah, I'm just excited to dive into Craig's
3: story. So Craig, with that, welcome to the podcast. Awesome guys. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate you for having me on here.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the why behind this book. And even honestly, before we talk about that, let's talk a little bit about your story. Cause my understanding is if you haven't reached absolute financial independence,
3: you're splitting hairs cause you're close enough. Is that accurate? Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm pretty much there. Yeah. And I'm not quite 30 yet, I'm 26. So oh, wow, know, feels good. Yeah. I thought it was 30. You aged him by half a decade. <laughs> yeah, man. man. Rounding wrinkles are coming in, but
0: Okay. So, uh, wow. Uh, I know my, my brother, Andrew, who actually helps us on the video side of things is listening to this saying, son of a gun. (laughs) Let's rewind a little bit here and talk about how this is possible. Like what did this look like in your own life to be able to reach financial independence or your version of it by the age of 26?
3: Yeah. So I, I started off with a job that I absolutely hated kind of the traditional reason why people want to get into financial independence. And once I discovered financial independence, I was absolutely sold. And I kind of stumbled upon bigger pockets and found this whole idea about house hacking and how you can, with a low amount down payment, you can eliminate your housing expense, which is going to likely be your largest expense. And so when I did my first house hack, I had $85,000 of student loans, no other types of debt, but I decided rather to pay down my student loans to actually purchase my first house hack because the 6% interest I was paying on my student loans. Was not nearly the amount of returns i could get from house hacking which i can describe in this book you get close to 100 percent returns because you're leveraged so much with the low down payment and you're eliminating your renting expense your cash flow and you're adding equity to a house all those factors just make you achieve these crazy crazy returns and it makes you expedite that journey towards financial independence rather than taking maybe 10 to 15 years doing it the traditional way of putting in index funds and saving 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 you're investing wisely which basically allows you to, you know, maybe get cut that down to three to five years, which is what I did. I did it in about three years. So,
1: Craig, let's uh, let's place this. So, you come out of college at twenty two, roughly. You have eighty five thousand dollars in student loan debt. How do you come across bigger pockets? How do you come across anything financial related? I think a lot of us are wondering, like, how can we tell our younger siblings or our family members or friends about this before they've made Mistakes. I'd love to hear how did you even come across any aspect of of the financial world at twenty two or thereabouts.
3: Yeah, well, it's just because I really hated my job. It was all about having that freedom. And what I did was I actually just stumbled upon Tim Ferriss's book. Someone told me to read Tim Ferriss's book, The Four Hour Workweek. And he, in that book, says you need a recurring stream of passive income. And I was like, okay, I'm going to have startup ideas. And I was in Silicon Valley at the time, so. Dumb startup idea after dumb startup idea after dumb startup idea. I realized that that wasn't working. So then I stumbled upon bigger pockets, real estate, and then I kind of fell into Mr. Money Mustache, you guys at Choose Fi, all that type of stuff. And then I was like, okay, this is like a whole movement. This is something that's way bigger than just me or just me and a bunch of real estate people. Like, So that's kind of how it all started. So there are lots of real estate options that you can take. Certainly, I know there's
1: a whole laundry list of them that that we've heard from our friends at Bigger Pockets. but why did house hacking appeal to you and why was that maybe the obvious choice for you?
3: Because I really wanted to get into real estate, number one. So house hacking is great for two reasons. You get these really, really large returns because you're putting such a low down payment, like I mentioned before. You're eliminating your housing expense and you're also getting experience in real estate investing. But not quite as crazy as like putting crazy amounts down—forty, fifty, sixty thousand. You're maybe putting ten to twenty thousand down, and you're basically going home to your investment. So it's not like you have to travel across town or even to a different state to monitor your property or to find other people. It's you, when and when it's your house, you're going to treat it much better than you would if it was an investment property. So you just kind of have that transition, and it's really great. So Craig, let's just take a real quick step
1: back just in case this is someone's first time hearing ChooseFI or hearing about house hacking. What would be the, the technical definition of house hacking or what what would you tell someone is the elevator pitch for what house hacking even is?
3: Does this exist in Merriam-Webster? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it should though. So what house hacking is, is you buy a one to four unit property for a low percent down, typically three to five percent down. You live in one part either a room in a single family or a whole unit in a duplex, triplex, or quadplex, and you rent out the other units or rooms such that the rent from the units or rooms fully covers your mortgage, and you're living for free, paying down the mortgage, the house is appreciating, and likely even cash flowing a little bit. You have to live there for one year because that's how you get that low down payment loan. And one year later, you fill your spot that you were in. Now it's cash flowing an extra $700 or whatever it is a month. And you get to do that same exact thing again. And over time that builds and builds and builds. And but over time you, you did this in three years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, that's time, a very long right? time. Right? Yeah. Well, that's it's a long like, time. <laughs> I,
0: I really want to like actually explore this. Cause I, I did not realize that you graduated with 85,000 in the way I did the setup. Honestly, your story is even more awesome and more pronounced. It doesn't make what I said less true. It just makes it more true. You graduated with $85,000 in student loan debt and three or four years later, you've, you've reached financial independence. So I think it is important for audience. Like what does financial independence look like for you? Like, how do you calculate that in your mind? How does this kind of change? Maybe the traditional calculation that we would talk about. What is your mathematical approach to FI here?
3: Basically, I just look at my cash flow from each property. Right. And so I generate about a thousand dollars a property. And so that's $3,000 a month. Uh, It's $36,000 a year, and I live pretty frugally. Like I still bike to work. I don't go out to eat all that much. I just spend on things that I truly value, and that's usually traveling, which is... I get travel points with that anyway. So if you're just a little bit savvy, you you can very easily live on that $36,000 a year. Now, I don't want to live on $36,000 a year forever, so I'm going to continue to work a little bit, continue to build my portfolio, and all that kind of stuff, but...
0: Yeah. I don't normally ask this, but since this is a slight pivot, I'm curious in your mind, is this not about net worth, not about investments? It's purely about cash flow. And when your cash flow exceeds your cost of living, that for you, I mean, I have no problem with that line of reasoning, but I'm just curious, is that how in your mind, how you're saying, hey, I'm financially independent? Basically,
3: yes. When you first start investing in real estate, you want to go for cash flow. And that's not going to build your net worth nearly as much as if you were to do like an appreciation type play. But once you get that cash flow and you can become financially independent, now you're free, right? You have the ability to quit your job. And then you can start taking risks that allow you to really exponentially grow your net worth much faster than you would just getting a cash flow property.
1: Craig, when you're talking this $1,000 a month from each property in cash flow, is that after reserving for, oh, the air conditioner breaks every now and again or whatever? Like, are you reserving for that? Because I'm sure somebody out there is going to say, oh, wow, I'd love to get $1,000 a month, even in the good months, but then what happens when X, Y, and Z breaks? So talk us through your mental calculations for this.
3: Yeah, sure. So the first thing I always do is I start with my monthly payment, right? And you can get that from any sort of lender. You just ask to get pre-approved. The house that I buy are typically between $300,000 and $400,000. And at that price, the my mortgage payments are all between $2,000 and $2,100. So I know what my monthly payment's gonna be, and that includes principal, interest, taxes, insurance, and private mortgage insurance, which you need to pay if you put less than 20% down. Then I go ahead and I look at, okay, what is my rent going to be either per room or per unit or whatever it is? And I always try to get between $750 and $1,000 more than that mortgage. Now, I've been very lucky and I've been able to get more than $1,000 many times. What I do is I take the total rent, I subtract the monthly payment, and I get usually $1,000 to $1,500 over that. And then I set aside a certain amount for reserves. And that reserves includes capital expenditures, includes vacancies, it includes maintenance and repairs, it includes all that stuff just in one number, rather than having so many different numbers to confuse you. What that number is, is on a variety of different factors. Basically, it could be the age of the house, right? The older the house, the higher you're going to want repairs, the popularity of your area. If I'm in downtown Denver, my vacancy is going to be very close to zero, but if I'm a little outside of Denver, maybe it's a little bit higher, maybe it's three or four percent. And so you kind of just like adjust the numbers that way, rather than having all these different things going in and making it really confusing. Gotcha. No, that makes sense. And and
1: you've said repeatedly already about a low down payment. Can you talk us through how that works? Is that like a requirement? You know, I know when I asked you for your definition of house hacking, you said a low down payment, stay there for a year, et cetera. Like. Is there wiggle room in this? Like, are there people who are putting 20% down and still house hacking? Like, talk me through maybe your perfect
3: world scenario and also what other people potentially could do. So one of the biggest advantages of house hacking is that low down payment, typically three to 5%, like I mentioned. And if you're in the military, you can actually get, do use the VA loan to get 0% down, but you don't have to put down three to 5%. If you feel more comfortable putting down 20%, you absolutely can, but you're just not going to see the same return on your money invested because you're going to put down, you know, four times as much.
0: I have two follow-ups on that. Uh, one is, and I'll start with the one that's really closely tied to that question, which is like, what's the downside of this? Cause the potential upshots of real estate is that you can use leverage in a relatively safe way if you know the rules, but clearly people have been burned. And, and I think a lot of people still have scars from 2008, 2009, uh, you know, leverage cuts both ways.
3: Why is this, you know, tactic? Why does this work? Why is this okay? This works because you have to make sure the numbers work. So you have to make sure that the rent you can get is going to exceed, well exceed that mortgage payment enough so that if something does go wrong, you're able to cover it. And a lot of people who got burned in 2008 and 2009 bought houses that they could not afford, right? They bought houses 125% of whatever they should have been, a loan to value, all of these things. That's why they got burned. I don't think that anyone at any point in time would have got burned if they had $1,000 to $1,500 in rent over the mortgage, because even if rents go down, you can still hold on through any sort of down, down market.
0: Right. Yeah. That's definitely where I was trying to pull out is the fact that this is a cash flowing business venture, as opposed to an appreciation play based on finding another sucker eight months, that's willing to pay another our 60 or $70,000 for this. So I, I definitely can. And I want to, I wanted to zone in on one more thing just for our audience. Like you very pointedly said one to four units, if we're just going to make up a number, why not five units? Why not? If it works great at four units, why not a 20 unit
3: apartment complex? Like, you know, what's the, what's the fixation on one to four. That's just the way. So Fannie and Freddie are the ones who basically have all the loans. They hold all of the loans for most of them and they only allow one to four units, they consider one to four units, a residential property five or more is a commercial property. And so if you're going to buy a commercial property, you got to put down 25% or higher.
0: So basically you're talking about a commercial property. You're talking about five, six units, and now you're talking about a six or $700,000 property. And then you got to bring on top of that, a pretty hefty, you know, you're looking at bringing hundred K to the table easily for that. And so yep. this allows you to get into four units is magically somehow still considered residential. Did we miss the window on this? Like, is this still available or house hacks still out there? Like, is
3: Is this something that just because we're talking about it, it's all gone? No. I mean, there is house hacks. There's house hacks in every market. You'll see in the book too, I've got case studies for people in all different markets doing all different types of strategies. You just have to get creative based on your market. I mean, I know here in Denver, I help people buy house hacks as well here. And the best thing that works here is buying a single family home and renting by the room. So if you're okay with living with some roommates and getting that all situation, then you can easily do this. Like every single house hack that I look at works. It's just a matter of, do you want to live there? you want this type of layout? But the numbers work in almost every single one.
1: So Craig, talk me through the one year thing. How does that work? Why is that a requirement? How does that benefit you? And, and how has that worked in your own practice?
3: Yeah. So the one year thing is another stipulation by all of the lenders. And it just says that you have to live there in a year because it's basically like a primary residence that you're buying. And that's why you're able to do that three to 5% down. The idea is that you take more care of a primary residence than you would your investment. There's more emotional ties. There's whatever it is. And so the banks are more comfortable lending with a lower down payment than they would on an investment property. And so that's why, so in order to get that three to 5% down and not commit mortgage fraud, you have to stay in the property for one year. But once that year runs out, literally 365 days later, you can close on your next place and you can move into the next one. Guiding light, don't commit mortgage fraud.
1: (laughs) Please, please avoid that. So, okay, so you still get the beneficial, the original treatment of that loan even though you're not residing there as your personal, as your personal residence after that one year. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? That's exactly right. Awesome. So Craig, you said you have three of these, I think you're buying a fourth. Is this something you intend to keep on doing? Like, where are you going to have 10, 15, 20 house hacks or, or is there some logical end to it for you personally?
3: I definitely just kind of think on a year by year basis. So this year I'm going to do one. And then if my life changes in a year from now, and I don't know, maybe I find someone that doesn't want to house hack, right? I, the whole point of this is to be super flexible, which is the whole idea of financial independence. And so I'm going to continue to do this until it no longer makes sense. But I always think that house hacking in some capacity would be great. So if I don't want to live in a room with five, live in a house with five other people, maybe I do the luxurious house hack type where you, buy the house of your dreams, but have uh, additional dwelling unit in the back that I can Airbnb and maybe get a thousand bucks a month from. Right, so then it's not really impeding my life and it's more.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that sounds a lot like Brandon Turner who wrote the forward to your book, right? He's doing something similar to that in Hawaii.
3: Yeah, he's living in his dream house in Hawaii, views of the beach, he's got a triplex, him and his family live on the top floor and he rents out the other two units.
0: So I'm curious when you actually talk about, you know, putting together the book, clearly this is something that you've done and I'm just, I'm really interested in why this book doesn't already exist. And this is incredible. I mean, you've kind of diaried everything that you personally had to work through.
3: And I'm just curious, why did you feel the need for the book? My number one passion is to help people achieve financial independence, especially if it's through real estate investing. And so I think that first step of real estate investing should be house hacking, not only because you can get those large returns and all that kind of stuff, but because of all the real estate experience that you can get as well, and how much more comfortable you get in investing in real estate after you've done a few house hacks, that you build that confidence to then go do other real estate deals or put your money in other places to, again, just really expedite that financial independence journey. So then you can go out and change the world and do your own thing or whatever it is. So...
0: It's, it's just crazy. If you think about it, what if the only thing separating you from cash flow in your life was just, are you willing to have a roommate for three years? That's literally the hangup that I think most people would just have is, well, I just don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to have anybody else living in my house. Like if you can overcome that objection or work through it in your own mind, you successfully pull off three house acts and you have a mathematical equation that you're working through to tell you whether or not it'll be viable. I mean, it just, it just basically works, right? Yeah, it works. So and there's. I'm curious to that, you know, are you okay having a roommate question? You actually dedicated a chapter to getting your spouse on board. And I'm curious, what have you seen with that? When you've had conversations with, you know, you say people come to you and they talk to you about doing it. What are the types of conversations that are needed to be had in order to, yeah, get buy-in from your partner?
3: So there's always a seed that needs to be planted. I don't think it's going to be very hard to to convince someone in one day to con- dramatically change their lives living this luxurious life, where you guys describe it all the time, living this luxurious life all by yourself, blah, 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 blah. To, okay, we're going to scale back, not live in the most expensive place, have a couple of roommates, not pay so much in rent, all these kind of things. And so you really have to plant the seed of what would you do if you never had to work a day in your life? And then give me your ideal life. And it's always this dreamy thing. She wants to travel, or sorry, I'm, he- I'm a new guy. <laughs> he or she, yeah, he or she wants to travel or do this or do that. And or start a business, run a nonprofit, whatever that is. And then you say, okay, well, how do we get there? And if you want to get there in five years, house hacking would be a great start to do that. And then you show the numbers, right? And you say, okay, we put this much down and we save, basically we get all of that money back into year one and now we have this property cash us a $1,000 a month. And then we buy the second one. And now we've got two properties cash us $2,000 a month, three $3,000 a month. And so after three years, How much do you live on if you live on, you know, $30,000, which really isn't, which, which is actually a decent amount of money you can then go pursue those ventures that you wanted to do after just three years of working rather than working for 45 and then pursuing your love for travel at age 65 when you can barely walk up the stairs.
0: So Andrew is back here. He's editing the video for this and his brain is exploding right now. I can actually, (laughs) I can actually see it happening. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's talk about just how you aggregated this book. What, what's being accomplished here. So the power of house hacking, I buy into that. I see it. The basics, where to house hack? So finding a location, building a team, looking for financing, how to find the deals, analyzing the deals, making the offer and going under contract, marketing the property, screening tenants, tenant due diligence, managing the house hack. I mean, this you've really built out a framework here for how to engage with this idea. And I'm curious, what was the hardest
3: chapter to write? The hardest chapter to write was probably the tenant screening and the managing that is just because there's just so many potential Things that could happen. And I just wanted to put all of them in the book, but I just physically could not. I would and Craig, that it.
1: actually ties in to a question. So we have a Chooseify cohort group on house hacking. Everybody can find that at slash local and just click on the cohort groups. And Danielle asks, Where can I go to learn about the legalities of house hacking, laws and taxes? Is it state specific? How do you go about writing leases? Her plan is to purchase my first house and rent out rooms to long term tenants. And she said, even though it's tempting to do things casually, I think it's best to do things right from the start. So she's looking, obviously, your book is, is an answer for some of it, but are there
3: areas that you would recommend on Bigger Pockets or elsewhere that people can find this information? My book has some of that stuff, but definitely not crazy detail about the legalities and taxes, just because every state and every person is different. Basically, what I would do is get on Bigger Pockets and maybe ask a forum hey, I'm in this county, what are some of the laws around house hacking? Has anyone done this? Try to meet people who have house hacked in your area and ask them questions. Mostly house hacking and traditional landlording is not much different. So if you just go to your city or state and type in landlord tenant laws, your city, state, you'll be able to get all of those laws and you can look through them and you basically get a pretty good picture of what you can and cannot do. As for taxes, everyone is different and I'm not a CPA, so I don't want to do that. The biggest tax advantage in real estate is depreciation. And when you house hack, you're able to depreciate all parts of that house that you're in that you are not currently occupying. So if you live in a five-bedroom house that is 2,500 square feet, you can basically depreciate four-fifths of that. So four of those bedrooms, you can depreciate four-fifths of the value of the house, you can depreciate, and that is a huge saver on taxes. Hey, Craig, we have another question here from the house hacking cohort group, and they
1: said... For a house with the intent to reside and rent out rooms, would you do a 30 or 15 year mortgage? If it was just for me, I'd do 15, this person said, but considering that others will be paying the mortgage through rent, including interest, I can see doing a 30 year so as to increase the monthly profit. This is their first house hack and they're, they're really just curious
3: for your thoughts. I really like doing the 30 year just to increase that cash flow as much as possible. You can always refi later into a 15 if you'd like, or just make double the payment and you'll be around 15 years and just put extra towards principal and you'll can pay it off in 15 years. So I would rather have that flexibility of, okay, I can maybe get an extra thousand dollars in cash flow here if I have it on 30 year. Yeah, that makes sense. Preserving that flexibility is crucial, right? So you're paying a slight little interest
1: rate premium, but you're getting that flexibility to pay it off over 30 instead of 15. So I think that's actually the same line of reasoning that my wife, Laura and I used when we purchased our own single family residence, our, our, our own house, basically, we went for the 30 year mortgage because it was just that little premium. And we wanted to preserve that flexibility. So that made sense for
3: us. Exactly. And you could also take that money you're saving and invest it elsewhere, hopefully at a higher rate than that percentage right. of your mortgage. So then you could actually be more optimized in your investing strategy as well. Yeah, agreed. So yeah, Craig, The book is fantastic. And people
1: can find it at biggerpockets.com slash house hack. And I know Jonathan and I both have said this is the one thing that we wish we had done when we were younger. Yes. And it is a force multiplier. And I definitely implore everybody to check it out, both on BiggerPockets and through your book.
0: So the book is The House Hacking Strategy. You can find it at BiggerPockets, as Brad mentioned, and I believe it'll be available in stores everywhere on Thursday, October 17th. Craig, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, man.
3: Thanks so much for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: And Brad, I can tell you, like, once I finish my, uh, taking all my notes out of the book, extracting my notes out of this book, I'm going to be giving this to my brother because uh-huh. this is one of those, like, I've been telling him about this strategy. I've been telling him this is one of my big regrets that I didn't act on this sooner. But, um, you know what, if you can't do it for yourself, let's get some yeah, family. Owners take poem, action man. on it. Yeah, exactly. All right, huge thanks to Craig for joining us on the show today and sharing a little bit of insight and the why of this book. Uh, we are going to be following up with him to look and see whether or not we can do a Q&A in our house hacking group, and he can be there throughout the day to moderate that. So more uh, details to follow on, on that particular session if this is something that you're interested in, see what it looks like to be able to pull this off in your local zip code. All right, now next I wanted to go ahead and MK bring you back into this. We very recently launched a survey on the cities of Phi.
2: Yes. So we got an amazing response when we did our Choose a Fi survey a couple of months ago, which has been super helpful in making sure we are bringing you all the content that you would like to see. And some of the things that we see a lot, a nice little friendly competition between our local groups is where is the best city to live for domestic geo arbitrage. We all want to figure out what the best place is for us personally, for our preferences, but also that has all the five things that we love.
0: The Phi so things. We, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so we are looking for some of the best U.S. cities for Phi in this survey. So for all the international listeners out there, do not worry. We are going to be doing an international survey later. But for this specific survey, we would love it if you could take a couple minutes to give us some details about your city. Um, we did ask some detailed questions here to make sure we are taking everything into account as far as cost of living, what you can earn there and also just the benefits of that city. So if you go to choosify.com slash cities of Fi, and we're going to be posting this on social media and it'll be on our email newsletter as well this week. But if you can go there, take a few minutes. We would love to be able to put together the ultimate list of the best US cities for Fi.
0: Oh, the ultimate list, Brad.
1: <laughs> I love it. I love it. And MK, just for clarity, that is chooseify.com slash
0: cities of F-I-C-I-T-I-E-S-O-F. FI. Brad has this like little thing where like he can't stand it when something is like dropped as a link, but there's some ambiguity about how it might be spelled (laughs) every single time it has happened. He has paused us and said, we need to go back and spell that. (laughs) I listen
1: to so many podcasts and they'll say like the name of the company or the website so quickly that I can't hear it. And it's so frustrating to me. So I always want to be very slow That's right. and methodical That's here. Right. That's right. <laughs> Create
0: podcasts like you are a listener of podcasts. Yeah. That's the key. Okay, let's go ahead and send this back to you. What are our local group updates?
2: Well, this weekend, uh, we have the Salt Lake City Group is hosting the second stop for our Five book tour. So that's October 12th, tomorrow at 2 p.m. at the Sugarhouse Barnes & Noble. Chris Mamula will be there to talk about the book, do a signing, and then I believe they're going to maybe go over to a brewery afterwards. So uh, definitely check that out. And then on the 17th, so to confirm what you were just talking about, Jonathan, Craig is actually going to be doing a live Facebook Q&A in our house hacking group. So if you're interested in house hacking, uh, join the group so you can be part of that next week.
1: And yeah, MK, to join that house hacking group, that's one of our cohort groups. So just head to com slash local and click on cohort groups. And that house hacking group is right there. That's also how you join our I local groups generally.
0: Actually, someone just sent us an email last week, right here in Richmond, Virginia, uh, basically saying, here's a property. It does not meet the 1% rule, but it would be perfect for house hacking. And he just sent sent us the MLS feed. And uh, so anyways, it might be one of those things where if you're in this group and you're in an area and you have a property that you know would be perfect for house hacking specifically, but you, for whatever reason, can't act on it. Share the love, my friends. Go ahead and let us know uh, what what you're looking at. (laughs) And and the
1: the funny story behind that is it's a guy, Bill, from my pool that we talk about all the time. I'd never met him. And he actually came up to me at our local elementary school when we were there for a walk to school day. And he's like, hey, Brad, I've been meaning to introduce myself. I'm Bill. I've been listening to your podcast for the last X number of months. It was just, it was a really cool, small world story. And yeah, he sent us this, this great property. So that's the value. One of... Many, many, many things of value of these Chooseify local groups.
2: And we actually have a new local group to celebrate in Quebec, Canada. So welcome. And we did also get a voicemail this week from Renee. So Renee was asking some very specific questions about if you are a citizen of one country, but you're living, working, or planning to retire in another and how those very specific accounts worked. So one thing I would recommend in this case is to check out our Chooseify expats group. Instead of just going to the local group for that country you're living in or the country that you're a citizen, of the expats group has a whole group of people who are dealing with that same question, and they can probably help you get to an answer. An accountant would also help too, but uh, the expats group should help to point you in the right direction for your specific citizen retirement country combo.
0: Right, and to your point, finding an accountant—you know—if you can find who other people have used with success, that would probably be a good option as well. But the groups are what you make them. So if you're not there, then the needs we need to fix this. What does it look like? Just go to chooseify.com/local. Find and get involved in your local group today. All right. Well, unfortunately, that's going to bring this episode to a close. Now, as you know, we like to finish every episode by doing a drawing for a copy of a book that we have found useful. We're using our book, Chooseify Your Blueprint to Financial Independence. To enter the drawing, just go to chooseify.com slash iTunes, follow the instructions there, leave us a short written review and send us an email to feedback at chooseify.com, letting us know that you left your review and what screen name you left it under. We give away one book for every five written reviews that we get. And we announce the winner on the Friday roundup. One kind of interesting point I actually happened to go back and look at chooseify.com slash iTunes. And I created that page in the early days, probably like two or three months into starting the podcast. And at the time where I kind of created the tutorial on how to do it, I think we had like a hundred reviews and I just recently checked and it's, uh, almost 3000 reviews, Brad. So, so many of you, nearly 3000 of you have taken the opportunity to let us know that you're getting value from the show. And I just want you to know, like, we appreciate that. We really do. Yeah. We read each and every one. So thank you. Even the not so good ones. (laughs) All right. Uh, MK, how many winners do we have today?
2: Well, today we have one winner and that is Eve. So Eve writes adult life 101. I have been following this podcast for six months now. My mindset has shifted completely to become wiser on my life. I am glad I am being taught finances by not just two, but by many who share the idea of living with a purpose and creating experiences by being smart with money and life. I wish my parents had taught me at least 10% of what is being said in here. It is never too late to start living the fine-minded life. Wow,
0: that is awesome. A fantastic way to wrap the show. Thank you so much for joining this week. The fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled.
2: You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.